So we have shown some 90 film screenings in over the last nine years. And we want to show these films so that we can learn from the mistakes of the past, the history. So we're not doomed to repeat history. Uh, we really need to learn from the past to make a better tomorrow. For a long time, we said never again. This would never happen again. We want to make sure this would never happen again. But unfortunately, it is right now. Um, as we speak, there are people locked away in this country. Um, and so it has happened again. And so I think um, this moment in time is really a cautionary tale for the rest of this country that we cannot let our guard down, that we have to continue to educate people and make sure they understand um, what it means to be a U.S. citizen and what it means to uphold the civil liberties of people who want to come into this country. Welcome to the third installment of the Chapters podcast series. I'm your host, John Barrett Ingalls, along with Jonelle Strickland. In our chapter series, we focus on stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. But with all that is happening in our country right now, in this historic moment, ripe with the potential for change and growth. We are expanding our scope and amplifying the voices of organizations and artists who are trying to make a difference, who are standing at the convergence of art, education, and social justice. With this series, we honor those who have struggled and suffered in the past and question, how are we still here? How have we not come any further than this? In this episode, we connect with Kenji G. Taguma, president of the Nietzsche Bay Foundation, and John Osaki, director of the documentary Alternative Facts, one of the many films screened at the Nietzsche Bay Films of Remembrance series. Here is Jonelle with Kenji Taguma. Kenji G. Taguma is a native of Sacramento, California, and the president and founding board chair of the Nietzsche Bay Foundation, an educational and charitable nonprofit organization which launched the first nonprofit ethnic newspaper of its kind in the country, the Nietzsche Bay Weekly, of which he is the editor-in-chief. In addition to this role, he serves as the executive producer of the Films of Remembrance series. So the Nietzsche Bay Foundation, Nietzsche Bay Weekly, I see it as the third chapter of the Nietzsche Bay Legacy. First was the Nietzsche Bay Shimbun founded in 1899 by Kyutaro Abiko, known as probably the most influential Issei, immigrant, Japanese immigrant pioneer. Um, the Nietzsche Bay Shimun was the most influential pre-war paper, but he also founded three farming colonies in the Central Valley of California, a bank and a labor contracting company that brought laborers from, uh, from Japan. And the, the, the paper then was important as a communication tool for a, a, a bunch of, um, for immigrant community. And so it was keeping people connected. And I think what our mission for Nietzsche Bay Foundation and Nietzsche Bay Weekly is to keep the community connected, informed, and empowered. Very simple. Um, you know, after the war, some of the staff of the Nietzsche Bay Shimun got together specifically to get the community reconnected after their devastating wartime incarceration, because everybody was scattered. If they had lived in Fresno before, they might have moved to San Francisco. If they lived in Sacramento, they might have moved to San Jose. So it was, uh, the, the Nietzsche Bay Times after the war was used to get the community reconnected. And, and the main founder of that publication, Chichinosuke Asano, who was a Japanese editor before the war, um, he used it to help influence this um, movement to send post-war relief goods to Japan. 
Um, and so it rallied the Japanese community, even though we came out of camps with nothing but $25 and a, and a train ticket, uh, they knew that their, some of their relatives in Japan had absolutely nothing. They were starving. Um, they were bombed out. And so, um, 20% of 17 tons that were sent to Japan through different 13 relief organizations. Uh, 20% of that was from Japanese Americans in North America and South America and sent out from the port of Alameda. Um, and so the Nichibei Times in the early days as the first Northern California Japanese American newspaper uh, was very instrumental in the, and Mr. Asano, the editor or the president of the Nichibei Times uh, was a leader of that movement. So as we were closing, as the Nichibei Times Board of Directors was closing in 2009, uh, I led this movement to try to form the first nonprofit ethnic community newspaper of this kind in, in, in the country, really. There was no model to follow, which was very frustrating. <laughs> um, but we had, you know, publications, a Chicago Italian-American publication calling us to try to see how they can follow us, um, other Japanese-American publications, Korean-American publications were asking us how to create a nonprofit. And I think uh, University of Minnesota MBA program had done a case study on us. But we started out, you know, simply, we didn't miss an issue. The last issue of the Nietzsche Bay Times uh, was September. And then the next week, we started the first issue of the Nietzsche Bay Weekly as a nonprofit. Um, publication. And we were fortunate that at the time, a lot of newspapers were laying off editors and writers. So we had the former uh, assistant sports editor, the Chronicle was mm-hmm. helping out. Former copy editor, the Oakland Tribune was helping out. Former Asahi Shimbun associate reporter was helping out. And, uh, you know, we had um, journalism students who were trying to, you know, get an internship. And um, we basically started the, the publication Guerrilla style at a in the back of a, a Japantown nonprofit organization. Um, it was tough because we only had three weeks between the closure and then we announced, okay, we're going to get donations and, you know, we're going to start this thing. We don't know what it's going to look like, but please join us. <laughs> so the Nietzsche Bay Foundation started the Films of Remembrance in 2012 because there were films being made out there, but not any venue to show them. So we used it to complement the Day of Remembrance, which is the annual commemoration held to um, remember the Japanese-American wartime incarceration in American concentration camps. Um, so, it, you know, we've always, as a media, nonprofit media organization, we, it's still in the family of media. So we um, have shown some 90 film screenings in, over the last nine years, as w- not only in San Francisco, Japantown, but we expanded a second day to San Jose, Japantown earlier this year to New York City and to Sacramento. And we want to show these films and basically the same reason why we show the virtual remembrance so that we can learn from the mistakes of the past, the history. Uh, so we're not doomed to repeat history. Um, we really need to learn um, from the past to make a better tomorrow. John Osaki's grandparents were incarcerated at Tule Lake internment camp. His film, Alternative Facts, honors their story and their struggle, while inspiring those from his children's generation to learn, to remember, and to prevent this tragedy from reoccurring. Uh, this film, we really started, or I you know, made the decision to start working on this in 2016. 
Um, a couple of things happened that year. One is I took my children on a pilgrimage um, to the site where their grandparents were incarcerated during World War II. And it was during that time that I started to realize that there was a lot of the story that um, hadn't been told, um, that many, even, even in, within the Japanese American community, did not understand. Um, and it got me just really interested in thinking about in, in sharing uh, that side of the story. Uh, the other thing that happened in 2016 is we had a presidential election. Um, and some might recall that um, during that time, um, political pundits and public officials actually started to come forward and suggest that um, not only was the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II um, justified, but that it could serve as precedent for actions that might have to be taken against Muslim Americans and Syrian refugees. And, you know, I had grown up, you know, I was in college when uh, the U.S. government issued a formal apology to Japanese Americans and provide reparations. So I lived most of my adult life um, thinking that um, this country had acknowledged the horrible mistake that it made and that most people in this country understood um, how wrong that was. So it was shocking to me to hear um, educated people um, actually um, come forward publicly and suggest um, that this was warranted um, and that we might have to do something very similar um, to other groups. And at that point, I decided that I had to do something about it. And the alternative facts film was me doing something about it. And I think what I attempted to do in that film was um, a share uh, part of the story that most of in this country, frankly, have no idea about. They um, most do not understand how deceptive that whole process was, how it was based on lies. It was based on a political agenda. Um, and I think what I attempted to do as well was to show the many parallels to what's taking place today in this country, where groups are being targeted and scapegoated, not based on evidence, not based on an actual threat to this country, but purely based upon a political agenda um, to help people um, get elected um, and maintain positions of power. And so this film was really me trying to raise awareness about that and all the ways that we are uh, unfortunately repeating history. There's a couple things that I wanted to be able to do with it. One is that for young people, they rarely see other young people in films about this topic. Um, they're almost always former incarcerees, scholars, um, historians, and, and for obviously for very good reason. Um, that's who typically is in, is in these types of films. Rarely are there young people. So I made sure that when I made alternative facts that I featured two young people who could talk about it from the perspective of thinking about their great grandparents and thinking about um, their grandparents. And I think that that was really important. Uh, I wanted to be, uh, I thought, you know, by doing that film could be a way in which to connect the story 
to younger audiences. Um, and I also think that it's, it's highly um, accessible for people. You know, I'm very um, pleased that I've been able to um, work with an educational distributor um, to get this, to start to get this film into classrooms, to get it into educational streaming services. And that's really was my goal from the, from the very beginning was to figure out how to make this as accessible to young people as possible. Um, and I think that, you know, film is a, a great way, you know, is, is just a way that it resonates with a lot of populations right now, especially as we are sheltering in place because of the pandemic. Um, and I think the other thing that I have really tried to do through my film as well is not just present information and increase awareness, but to try to convey emotional context around the incarceration, to make people feel um, what some of the feelings might have been like for people who went through that experience. And so that that is something that I really emphasize through my film. Um, I'm very pleased to say that many people have told me that they've cried um, at <laughs> watching my films. Um, and I don't mean that to say in a facetious way, but that, you know, that is really one of my goals is I want people to feel. Um, I don't want them just to learn. I want them to feel and understand, um, you know, how it might have felt um, to, to go through some of those experiences. Here is Jonelle with Kenji Taguma. On Sunday, August 9th, 2020, at 4 p.m., something historic happened in San Francisco, California, to mark the passing of something even more historic that took place in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, 75 years ago. What happened that day at four o'clock? We knew that the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings was coming up. And in the past, at the 60th and 50th anniversaries, there have been community commemorations. And um, we thought that it was really important to have something on the 75th anniversary because this may very well be the last milestone year the Hibakusha or atomic bomb survivors um, will have a chance to tell the world about the the horrors of nuclear just devastation um, you know and they have the moral authority to do so as the only victims of of atomic bombings um, and I think it's very important to give them a voice give their descendants a voice um, because there there hasn't been any um, similar bombings in 75 years. And I, I truly believe it's because of the, of the Hibakusha who have that moral authority to, to mourn the world about the dangers of such devastation. So the Nichibe Foundation partnered with the Friends of Hibakusha uh, led by Jerry Honda and um, many others. And we collaborated with the Japanese American Religious Federation and other community organizations too, like the National Japanese American Historical Society, Asian American Orchestra, for Solidarity and uh, Committee of Atomic Bomb Survivors. And just within less than three weeks, we put together a virtual program that became quite um, meaningful. And, and uh, to me, as a journalist of 25 or so years, um, I have never really looked at this issue so in depth. And so it was, it was really moving um, to do some of these interviews. But anyways, we got together and did a, uh, a commemoration, a series of interviews, uh, short films, including a, a brand new film by um, 
uh, Sundance award-winning Emmy award-winning filmmaker Emiko Omori called Ashes of Nagasaki and uh, a couple of interfaith ceremonies and we put that together as our first virtual program um, so it was new to us and um, we just felt compelled to do it at this at this time despite all the obstacles of holding um, holding such a commemoration we would have loved to do this outside but uh, we found a way to embrace the technology available and that's amazing that you were able to accomplish this and I heard you say only three short weeks. When I watched this, I thought, well, they must have been planning this for uh, months, half a year, a year. So to hear you say three weeks, it just goes to show when you really believe in a cause, you can bring people together to share that, share that passion with the world. Yeah, and it, we, you know, we only had a couple of meetings um, for this and so many people were were selflessly involved in this and had been assigned to do certain segments of it, a, a virtual exhibit by the National Japanese American Historical Society with music by uh, the Asian American Orchestra, uh, the films. Emiko Mori was, you know, we were gonna show one of her old films, but she said, I'm gonna make this new one. And it ended up being so, uh, such a beautiful poetic film on the Nagasaki experience. And there was just so many people who um, you know, bear their hearts and bear their souls in this for the purpose of giving the Hibakusha a voice. And um, yeah, it was, it was so tremendously important and dear to us. Uh, one of the people that we interviewed, Seiko Fujimoto, um, her daughter was my intern for four summers, um, the longest intern I've had. And, and although I've known her for 25 years, this is really the first time I've, I've heard her experience in detail firsthand. And that was probably personally the most moving, one of the most moving interviews that I've ever done of thousands of interviews. Um, um, for her, Seiko Fujimoto at three years old, you know, she moved to, uh, she moved with relatives in Hiroshima just days before the same week, uh, almost the same week of the atomic bombings. Um, Cause she was, her family was living in another city. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, her cousin, her aunt, her uncle, they were disintegrated. And at three years old, it was her and her one and a half year old brother left on their own. Uh, how uh, to become the head of a household at three years old, it's, it's just unimaginable. And, and the, the painful memories of, of her brother and the guilt, uh, the, the common thread through these stories is survivor's guilt. Um, they feel guilty that they survived when others didn't. Jack Taidiki, he was 15 minutes late because of the trains, and that 15 minutes saved his life. He, was, he would have been in, in the epicenter of Hiroshima as a 14-year-old, but his vivid memories were so clear. Um, and we really, uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate these survivors who have told their story often in, in the past years, but to remember uh, such detail, um, you know, um, Jack Daidiki also has done artwork based upon his recollection. Uh, Reverend Nobuaki Hanaoka, who was only eight months at the time and doesn't have any real memory. I mean, he has dedicated his life to be an advocate for peace. Um, and he's had some tragedy too. He lost his mother, uh, his sister, and likely his brother as a result of the bombings. And so these personal testimonies really bring... Um, brings bring bring the stories to life and what i worry about is what happens when these hibakusha are gone
with programs like uh, Nietzsche Bay uh, offering their their films of remembrance series, how important is it for there to be these organizations to amplify these these stories and uh, to amplify them maybe in communities that that don't have access to them? So, uh, I mean, the short answer is I think it's critical. Um, the truth is, is that young people are not learning these facts in schools. Um, they're not learning them in, frankly, most colleges. They have to seek out this information for themselves. And as I mentioned earlier, I was in college when the US government formally apologized for the incarceration. And so for years, I thought enough was being done to educate this our country about what happened to Japanese Americans. And then when my own daughter went away to college, she, um, she came home one day and told me that, you know, she was meeting young people from all over the country and they had gotten into a conversation about World War II. And when the topic of the incarceration of Japanese Americans came up, she said um, these friends of hers had no idea that this ever happened in this country. Um, and I think that that is unfortunately becoming more and more pervasive um, around this country that pe people are growing up not knowing this ever happened, having no understanding of what this country has done to groups of people. And so I think programs like Films of Remembrance are vital because not only do we have to educate those who don't know these stories and who don't understand what happened, we have to reaffirm and motivate the educators in our own community um, and constantly remind them how important it is to lift up this story, um, that it is not something that most people in this country understand, and that the only way to prevent groups from being targeted and scapegoated in the future is for people to understand the mistakes we've made, um, how we've allowed fear and politics to drive public policy and how dangerous that is. And as a community that has experienced this, we have to be extremely vocal and we cannot relent. We, our voices have to actually become stronger and louder as we get further, further away from that, um, from, the incar or from the incarceration during World War II, because the unfortunate fact of the matter is, is that we are rapidly approaching a day when there will be no more living incarcerates in this country. And it, it is up to the children of those and the grandchildren of those to really make sure that people are aware of what took place and speak with a loud voice to ensure that we um, decrease the chances of this happening again. For a long time, we said never again, this would never happen again. We wanna make sure this would never happen again. Um, but unfortunately it is. Right now, um, as we speak, there are people locked away in this country. Um, and so it has happened again. And so I think um, this moment in time is really a cautionary tale for the rest of this country that we cannot let our guard down, that we have to continue to educate people and make sure they understand um, what it means to be um, a US citizen and what it means to uphold the civil liberties of people who want to come into this country. The Nietzsche Bay Foundation leads annual pilgrimages to historic Angel Island in the San Francisco Bay 
and to the site of the first Japanese settlement in America, the Wakumatsu Tea and Silk Farm Colony. It wasn't until I was writing the obituary of George Araki, a former San Francisco State University professor, that I realized that the person that I worked with on other memorials uh, services, uh, he would, um, George, he was very instrumental in uh, rediscovering the immigration station barracks. It was his student, Alexander Weiss, that, uh, who was a California Parks employee that stumbled across the carvings in the wall of these buildings that were set to be demolished. They already burned some of those buildings for a Hollywood movie. <laughs> and so it was amazing that within 40 years, people forgot they, those buildings existed. But yet, you know, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of immigrants, particularly from Asia, who came through those uh, immigration stations. So I was always frustrated that more people did not know about this, that no, more people did not know about, you know, Mr. Weiss or George Odaki. And then um, photographer Mac Takahashi, who documented all those photos. Um, and so 2014, uh, we started this first Nikkei Angel Island pilgrimage, which was very historic. Um, we honored the, those three, uh, Alexander Weiss, George Araki, Mac Takahashi, for their role in rediscovering the immigration station. We had people from Seattle, Japan, Los Angeles, Sacramento. Uh, we had more than 600, 650 people converge on this island from two different ports um, in this very historic um, occasion. And throughout, with our partnership with the California Genealogical Society of California, um, they have helped to uh, get people reconnected to their own family histories with family history stations, consultations, you know, they get them started on genealogy through different bases, databases like Ancestry.com and Family Search and all that. Um, so over the years, you know, we've had uh, four Nikkei Angel Island pilgrimages, and um, it, it's become really one of the most memorable community events. In 2017, uh, we realized that the our the day we were going to have our pilgrimage is the same day as Fleet Week, and Angel Island is right in the middle of Fleet Week, and we thought it was going to be impossible to do. So, in just eight weeks, we we changed focus to the Wakamatsu Tea and Silk Farm Colony, which is also a very historic site because that is where the first sizable settlement of Japanese in America came in 1869, uh, and they are the true pioneers, the first. Japanese woman who died in America is buried there. Okay, Ito, um, the uh, a descendant of the colony. Um, now, I mean, the, the, their family is a first multiracial Japanese American family, and they still exist, um, uh, descending from colonists Kuninosuke Masumizu. Um, so it is a historic uh, site, and it hasn't really been open so much. So we brought. Uh, four buses there in 2017 and 2019. And for most people, it was the first time they've ever been there. Um, but it, we got to, you know, pay homage to, uh, to the early columnists who are, are really, um, you know, really had that pioneer spirit at a time when it wasn't easy to come um, to these shores. And, and right. although it only lasted only two years, um, you know, they were the precursor of waves and waves of immigrants you talked about your your pilgrimage with your children and then i watched uh yonsei eyes and um which is a documentation of their experience uh going to tule lake and and seeing where their grandparents were 
incarcerated. Uh, and I'd love for you to, t- to talk to us a little bit about what that was like watching your children experience this and learn this, that this was a part of, of their history. So it's a, you know, it's for many in our community, it's always a challenging question to think about how do we educate our children about this topic? Um, do we drag them to pilgrimages? Do we force them to sit in front of the TV and walk, watch documentaries? Do we take them to Days of Remembrance events? Um, it's, it's kind of a challenging um, topic because it's, it's a very uh, sad subject um, for children to think about their grandparents or their great grandparents being locked away for not just a few months, but for years. And so um, I think myself and, and we all sort of struggle with that, but I think I was able to bring my children to uh, on that pilgrimage at the right time. They were both in college. And I think they were at a point where they could really um, absorb and um, understand and appreciate uh, what took place during that time. So I think, wh- you know, when I made Yonseas, I, I had no intention of making a film out of it. I just happened to be taking home footage um, while I was out there. And then when I got back and I started to take a look at it, I realized that, I, you know, the their experience um, could resonate with a lot of young people. And, and that's really my interest as a filmmaker. Um, my day job is I have been running a child and youth development nonprofit in San Francisco for over 23 years now. Um, So I've been working with young people my entire adult life. And so figuring out how to make um, this chapter in American history uh, relevant and resonate with younger populations is really something that I have a lot of interest in. And I thought that the story of my children going through it um, could, would be of interest to hopefully many of their peers. We'd like to thank our guests, Kenji G. Taguma and John Osaki for sharing their mission. To find out about upcoming events, visit nichibay.org. To learn more about where to see John's movies, visit alternativefacts9066.com. Chapters podcast was produced by Heritage Future and made possible with support from Chapman University and California Civil Liberties Public Education Program, a state-funded grant project of the California State Libraries. For more information, visit heritagefuture.org, chapman.edu, and library.ca.gov.